0: Uh, Would you join me in 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning? We're in the middle of a series in Proverbs on building healthy homes, and uh, that's not over yet. Just want to take a a moment here today, though, to look at a few other texts. 1 Timothy 3, we're going to look at verses 1 to 7 here in a moment. Uh, We are excited to have an associate pastor, candidate, and his family with us on the coming two Sundays. And uh, we look forward to introducing them to you and you having a chance to meet and get to know them a bit. And with that visit in mind and the very real possibility of another man becoming part of our pastoral team, uh, I just want to address a couple of the Bible's teachings today on eldership uh, and, and, and pastors, what the Bible has to say about that. By the way, when I use the word elder, uh, just to be really clear, I'm using that word interchangeably, as I would understand the Bible to do, with the word pastor. A pastor is an elder, and an elder is a pastor. And when you speak about a church's eldership, uh, at least as we do that, we'd be speaking of a church's team of pastors. Here at Beaumont Baptist Church, in in case you're unaware, we have both what you might call uh, staff and non-staff Pastors or elders who all work together um, as an elder team. I, I'm the only pastor that uh, is, is paid to serve in the role and, and uh, freed up by the taking of a salary to really devote myself uh, full time every day to that. Uh, but we would also have men who serve uh, as non staff pastors and who are working other jobs throughout the week. Many church elderships are fundamentally broken, uh, they are not all healthy, they are not all functioning properly. Uh, They consist of men and sometimes they consist of women contrary to scripture who should not be part of those elderships. And unhealthy elderships can often be attributed to churches or church leaders who maybe they don't understand what the Bible has to say about that role. Or maybe they do understand it and say, we're just going to ignore it anyway. Uh, also you think about church elderships they're almost never static churches are never static there's always people coming and going and elderships are similar they change so you have elders uh, who would be joining a pastoral team and you would at other times have elders who are leaving it for a variety of reasons whether they move or perhaps become sick or die or become disqualified or god leads them away from serving in that role for one reason or another And as a church, what we want to do is we want to cultivate a healthy eldership. It needs to be strong and healthy, and hopefully that's the case. And and then what we want to do is try to protect that and maintain that through all the changes and cycles and seasons of church life. We're going to briefly look at some passages today that help us know what a healthy eldership looks like. Uh, And these passages in particular that we're going to look at today instruct us on who becomes an elder and a little bit of how do elders function together as a team. It is paramount that our church's eldership be healthy. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 22, Paul warns in that passage, he says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't Don't just put people in this role. You make sure the people that end up occupying that role and that space belong there. And So today, we want to consider two signs of a healthy eldership. Here's the first one. A healthy eldership consists of men who meet the qualifications. I've asked you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. There are parameters that have been put in place by God himself on who should and should not be an elder, in other words, there are certain boxes, we might say, that need to be checked in a man's life in order for him to serve as a pastor. And uh, I, I believe I've addressed these many, many times at Beaumont Baptist Church, and what I'm hoping today as I do that again, that what, some of what I say, and as you hear me say it, it will start to feel like, you know what, I think Nate's really just, like he's really reviewing here. I feel like I've heard him say that before. And if, if you're relatively new with us, I hope what you hear today will be extremely, extremely helpful and instructive. I just took a course last week on uh, boater safety. It was a three to four uh, hour online course with different modules and segments where you'd uh, watch little videos and uh, read little chapters. And what I found in that, that boater education course is every module, every chapter, it's like they kept sneaking this, this one particular, particular item in again and again and again. And what it was is uh, it all had to do with your personal flotation device. And they kept coming back to, do you know what the primary reason that people drown is for and are killed in boating accidents? They they didn't have a life jacket or a personal flotation device on the boat. Oh, next segment. Oh, by the way, do you know, personal flotation device, life jacket, life jacket, life jacket, life jacket, chapter after chapter, segment after segment. They just keep beating this thing. And that's really, in a sense, what I'm going to do a bit today. If you think I'm beating a dead horse, you're right. That is exactly what I'm doing, and very, very intentionally, because when elderships go sideways, whole churches tend to go down with them. This is no small matter. These are things you're going to hear again and again at Beaumont Baptist Church. So what are the boxes that need checked in a man's life based on 1 Timothy 3, 1-7? to Well, here's the first box. You are looking for evidence of craving. Uh, verse 1 of 1 Timothy 3 says that the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Okay, the verse I just read uses the word aspires and desires. And both of those words describe the craving that a man should have for the work of a pastor. When God calls a man to pastoral ministry, he places within that man aspiration and desire for the work itself. This verse is very clear that a God called man doesn't simply desire the the office of a position. He doesn't just desire some title or role, so to speak. He desires the work of a pastor. Uh, We see this in the last part of verse one, which says he desires a noble task. He desires the task itself. I think this verse actually summons God's people to examine a man's motivation for ministry. What's driving him? Does he desire a title? Does he desire some role that people will see him and look at him in a certain light? What's driving him? Does he desire a title or does he desire the work? The, the one is driven by a selfish ambition and the other is driven by love. And it's really important. So box number one, you're looking for the evidence of craving. Box number two, you're looking for the evidence of character. And that's verses 2 to 7. I want to read uh, these verses. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. That's the big idea. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household... How will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and to a snare of the devil. Uh, These verses speak of character that can be witnessed generally and in the specifics. Generally, the idea is of being above reproach. And uh, I've illustrated this several times with the idea of Teflon. A pastor should be a Teflon man. Many of you cook with Teflon pans. The idea, at least with Teflon, is if you have a good Teflon pan, nothing's supposed to stick to it. A pastor should be a Teflon sort of guy in the sense that people may throw stuff at him. They, They may attack his character and say, well, look at this and look at that. But when they do that, nothing actually sticks. Nothing actually holds. They may throw eggs at his character, but they don't actually stick. He's a Teflon sort of man. He's, we might say, above reproach. There's nothing you can pin on him with his character. That's the general idea. But character should also be witnessed in the specifics. In the specifics, an elder should be characterized as a one-woman man. He should be sober-minded and self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. He should be able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, a good manager of his own house, not a recent convert, well thought of by outsiders. Uh, We could spend time on each of those. We've done that in the past. I'm not going to do that here today. But that is not to say that an elder never struggles, sins, or has spiritual challenges with any of these. There is no pastor who is perfect or doesn't struggle. We're all in this Christian life together, and we have the flesh and the spirit. But generally speaking, this is how he should be characterized. Box number three that needs to be checked. You're looking for evidence of capacity. These all start with C. The first is craving. Second is character. Third is capacity. As with any trade, the workman needs to have the necessary skill set to get the job done. You're looking for the capacity to do the work of a, a pastor. What does that involve? Well, it involves the capacity to teach. Verse 2 says, an overseer must be able to teach. Uh, what do you need to be able to teach? Well, essentially you need two things. First, you, you need uh, skill in communicating clearly. You need the ability to communicate. And you also need biblical knowledge and doctrine. Both skill and knowledge are required. Uh, By the way, I think as we we note uh, an elder being able to teach, I think we need to remember that not all teaching is public, like like what's happening right here in this setting. A lot of teaching happens one-on-one, small group settings, but the ability to pass on to another person God's truth and do that in a way that's clear. So the capacity to teach, and along with that, the capacity to manage. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Uh, Pastors do function as administrators and leaders. And God tells us to look at how a man manages his own household to see whether or not he will be capable of managing God's household, the church. One writer noted, how you handle your bride matters very much if you would care for Christ's bride. That's the connection that these verses are making. Should a pastor be married, he should be a godly husband and a godly father. So what are we looking for? Craving, character, capacity, and all three of those, number four, the fourth box, must be confirmed. That's the fourth C. They're confirmed by other believers, not simply the man himself. You're looking for the evidence of confirmation. After talking about pastors in verses 1 to 7... God goes on and says of deacons in verse 10, it says, and let them also, in other words, let them also, just like the elders that were just talked about in the previous verses, let them also be tested first. In other words, other believers confirm whether or not a man should be a pastor. There's some element of of testing where other people are looking in saying, yes, yes, and yes, we see it. There's some history, there's some track record here. That means there's no such thing as a self-proclaimed pastor. Uh, The text isn't very specific here, but typically that that confirmation happens when a church calls a man to be their pastor. Uh, But we should be asking questions like this, I think. Would those who know a man best, and those who have served with them, and, and those who have given him opportunities, would they confirm that the first three boxes have been checked? Would those people confirm craving and character and capacity? Other believers need to be able to attest to that. A healthy church eldership consists of men who meet the qualifications. On the second Sunday that our associate pastor candidate is here, he's going to be here this coming Sunday and the Sunday after. On the second Sunday that he's here, during what is normally our table time slot, after the worship service, we we often will have our worship service break for 15 minutes and then we will have something called table time. During that slot, um, I'm going to ask him several questions publicly in front of all of you about his craving, character, capacity, and confirmation by the church. And if, if you're listening for that, you'll know, oh, I see what Nate's doing. He's asking questions that, that are all kind of in line with this text so that we can hear this guy speak to some of these matters. Our elders have already had lots of conversations with him about these things, but we want you to get a taste of that. Uh, and, and, and that's what it will be, a taste but we want you to have it. And if any of you have any concerns about any of those Cs based on what you hear or even perhaps what you do not hear, uh, we would say, please come talk to us. I think all of us want, want what is best for our church. And our expectation uh, is that you'll walk away really encouraged by what you hear, especially if you know what you're listening for based on this text. Let's move on to a second sign of a healthy eldership. And I want you to turn with me now to the book of Acts chapter 11. Second sign of a healthy eldership. A healthy eldership balances rule by one and rule by some. A healthy eldership balances rule by one and rule by some. I want you to think about this with me. Does the New Testament present the lead pastor as like this CEO guy with enormous power, who literally kind of sits at the top of the food chain uh, in the authority structure uh, and that sort of thing? Or does it present something different, perhaps more uh, nuanced than that? When we scan the New Testament, what do we find? Well, the New Testament provides evidence for a lead pastor or a lead elder. As we go to Scripture, we, we can find that idea there. It is a biblical concept, uh, not long ago, a pastor friend of mine was telling me about how several years back he and another pastor they they toiled, toyed, and uh, wrestled with this idea of you know what maybe we could like be co pastors of this church together, like literally co pastors, without either one of them actually being the lead guy. There is no lead guy; it's just kind of uh, a couple of us together. And in time, both of them agreed that that wasn't going to work, and one of them really did need to be the lead guy. I mean, they'd both be in the trenches together, but they there needed to be kind of a point guy. Is that biblical? Well, from the very beginning of church history, you see individuals holding a singular degree of authority in local churches. Uh, for example, obviously, look, on the apostolic side, you see Paul with a very, very high degree of authority, uh, not necessarily functioning as a pastor. You see Timothy, in Ephesus, First Timothy, chapter one, verse three, and chapter three, verse five, uh, in the book of Titus, you see Titus on the island of Crete, and uh, he may not be pastoring there, but he's appointing elders. Chapter one verse five, Paul says, "Here's why I left you in Crete. I want you to uh, appoint elders in every city." That sounds like significant authority. Uh, by the time, when, when you look at Acts chapter 12 and 15 and 21, it seems very clear that James, is, is, he's the presiding leader of the church in Jerusalem. He seems, it seems like he's the guy. In 1 Corinthians 3 verse 6, Paul says, I planted, and then what happened? Well, oh, Paulus came and he watered. And again, you get this idea that there, there was like this key guy. You have Archippus with the Colossians, Colossians 4, verse 17. In the book of 3 John, you have something going on with Diotrephes and then Demetrius. Uh, maybe a, a particularly interesting passage is Revelation chapter 2 and 3. You have all these letters that are written to churches, and who are they addressed to? Each of those letters are written to an uh, address specifically to an individual. To the, I think in the, the King James, the way it had worded it, to the angel of the church of, to the angel of the church of. angels a word that simply means messenger. To the messenger of the church of. And it seems more than likely that each of those people, quote-unquote referred to as angels, probably not the best translation there, messenger being the idea, each of those being the pastor of those churches. So the lead pastor idea really does seem to be present in scripture. However, Simultaneously along with that, the New Testament provides evidence for a plurality of pastors and elders. Again, those words being used interchangeably. I've asked you to turn to Acts chapter 11, verse 30. Though Scripture does not give a specific mandate that churches must have multiple elders, that certainly seems to be, as you scan the New Testament, that certainly seems to be the predominant pattern and the ideal scenario. Provided that the men... Are qualified, provided that they do have craving, character, capacity, and confirmation of, of, of other believers. The word elder is almost always used in the plural in the New Testament. If you do a word search on this word in the New Testament, this is what you will find. You will find elders, plural, again and again and again and again, and you will almost never find an elder singular. And I'll show you that. I want to demonstrate that to you from Scripture, beginning in Acts chapter 11, verse 30. We're just going to kind of work our way through the book of Acts and just note this. Acts 11, verse 30. It says, and they did so, sending it to the elders, plural, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Turn over to chapter 14 and look at verse 23. And when they had appointed Elders, plural, more than one. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Uh, you can skip over to Ch- Acts chapter 15. And now we're getting to the territory of, uh, in the book of Acts, what's called the Jerusalem Council. Acts chapter 15, You look at verse 2 with me. And there's this big debate going on in the church and some things that need uh, worked out and settled theologically. Acts chapter 15, verse 2, it says, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to who? The elders about this question. They've got a question that they're wrestling with theologically. And they're all going to Jerusalem and they're going to meet with the apostles and the elders. Uh, Skip down to verse 2. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, plural. Uh, Skip down to verse 22 of Acts chapter 15. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, plural, with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch. Flip over to Acts chapter 16, verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and who? The elders, plural, who were in Jerusalem. Flip over to chapter 20. And let's look at verse 17. Paul is, in this circumstance here, he's going to say goodbye to the Ephesian elders, uh, who he he dearly loves. Acts 20, verse 17, it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of the church to come to him. Flip over to the next chapter, chapter 21. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders, plural, were present. Uh, that's, that's just the book of Acts. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, I mentioned this verse. Uh, Paul writes to Titus and he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every town as I directed you. Uh, you're probably also familiar with James chapter 5, verse 14, which asks this question, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, plural, of the church and let them pray over him. Okay, based on well, we just looked at several verses, and I'd ask you a question: What is the consistent pattern of those verses? You see pastors plural. And what do you see them doing? You see them doing things like leading and shepherding and deliberating and making decisions. How? Together. You don't see standalone pastors. You don't see uh, the pastor CEO all by himself at the top of some authority structure making all the decisions and setting all the directives. That's just not what we see when we open up our Bibles. Shared leadership like that, like what we see, often takes significantly more work. But it's far, far better. Alexander Strock, who wrote what has really become the classic work on biblical eldership, has this to say, to function properly, shared leadership, that is plurality, requires a greater exercise of humble servanthood than does unitary leadership, than the, the solo CEO pastor model, basically. He goes on to say, furthermore, shared leadership is often more trying than unitary leadership. It exposes our impatience with one another, our awful pride, bullheadedness, self selfish immaturity, domineering disposition, lack of love and understanding of one another, and prayerlessness. Oh, really? Well, if you question just how serious Strock's words are, I could tell you stories from right here in Alberta of elderships that have literally blown up and split apart during COVID. Eldership done right isn't always easiest, but it's always best. A healthy eldership balances this idea of rule by one. Yes, there's, there's a lead pastor It balances the idea of rule by one and rule by some, a plurality of elders. To give you a quick look under the hood of our eldership, uh, as a lead pastor, I do set a lot of direction and and initiative uh, and a lot of conversations. Like, I'm the one bringing a lot of those to the table, so to speak, and that sort of thing, with our eldership. But with that, have you ever noticed... I would imagine that you have. Have you ever noticed that whenever decisions are made and communicated with you here at Beaumont Baptist Church, you always hear something like this. We as elders, or the elders have decided, or the elders believe, uh, something along those lines. And that's because we make decisions together, we roll them out together, and we stand by them together. When we make decisions we sit down with more or less equally weighted voices. And that means actually that my personal desires and my personal wishes don't always carry. And that's a good thing. How I would lead by myself might not happen, and that's healthy. No one has that kind of power or sway. When approached properly, eldership mitigates the potential risks of both young elders as well as seasoned, highly, highly revered ones. Uh, You you think about young elders. Young elders don't always have as much experience or wisdom behind them. And good, seasoned elders, one of the things that can happen is men like that can, can accrue a very, very high degree of trust and clout over the years of faithful and fruitful service. And that's a great, great strength with a huge potential weak spot in it. Because over time, what can happen is other people just start to trust their voice without ever questioning or challenging it. And it's probably right, 95% of the time. But God has put something in place where, yes, you have this lead pastor idea, but, but you have this team. You have this eldership of men who meet these qualifications. And they love God and they love their church and they love each other and hopefully they have character and humility and they come together and they, they wrestle with what Scripture says and what their church should do and how they should lead and all of these things and it's good. Healthy elderships insulate from the danger of one, young or old, and, and so many, so many other things. They can, there's a lot of dangers as well though which is why it's so important that we follow what God says in 1 Timothy 3 and try to follow what he has laid out to the best of our ability. A healthy eldership balances rule by one and rule by some. It is paramount that our church's eldership be healthy. And I just wanted to put that before you this morning as we have an associate pastor candidate coming in the next uh, couple weeks. I think that's all of our desire. God, would you bless our church? We want something healthy. We want something strong. Uh, We want to be looking for these things that you've laid out in Scripture, and we want to function properly. Uh, I hope that's helpful to you. I know it's just kind of flying over a lot of things really quick this morning, and uh, always happy to answer any questions you might have. Uh, But I hope that will give you a little bit fuller understanding of what the Scripture teaches on pastors and their calling to the work of pastoral ministry and how they work together. Will you bow your heads with me uh, at this time? I want, to, I want to encourage you at this time to just take the next few minutes there in your seat to uh, pray to the Lord, however he may lead you. Uh, I'd encourage you to pray about the next couple of Sundays and that God's will would be done, that God would strengthen and fortify our eldership, protect it, that it would be healthy for years to come, and that we would have the right men that God wants us to have in our eldership and that it would function as it, God wants it to function, that it would be extremely healthy, extremely strong, Uh, for his glory and for the benefit of the church. Why don't you take a few moments to pray and then I'll close us in prayer here momentarily.